Thanks for joining the Life's Better podcast, where we say life is so much better with God, community, and purpose. Josh and I are hanging out actually with Chad Helm today. He is the coordinator for, or the program coordinator for Isaiah House. Uh, Isaiah House is a treatment center that really is offering hope for addiction. Mm -hmm. And we're excited not only to hear about what Isaiah House is doing, but today we're actually going to hear your story. And I think it's overused oftentimes, you know, hey, we're really excited to have this guest on. Uh, I'm genuinely really looking forward to allowing other people to hear your story. Uh, I've been able to hear it and really powerful. It's one of those stories that has a lot of heartbreak, uh, trauma, um, difficulty, but it has hope and it has healing and Mm -hmm. has restoration. I think those are the best stories and Christ is at the center of it. So um, we're going to turn you loose just to kind of share your journey um, with uh, addiction and also with recovery. And then afterwards, we'd love to just kind of ask you some questions. But Chad, it's it's yours. Most people are, are ready for like the silly game to get to know the guest. We're not doing that today. Yeah. We're, we, uh, Chad's got just a great story. We don't want him to just share um, from his heart. So Chad, yes. it's yours. Well, first off, thank you guys for having me. No problem. And uh, thank you guys that are watching or listening. Um, you know, my name is Chad Helm, and I'll kind of just get right into it. Um, I just celebrated three years clean and sober. Mm. And uh, I was a heroin and meth addict for 13 to 14 years. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about my life journey. You know, as a kid, I was born when my parents were 15 and 16 years old. And obviously, they're my kids trying to raise kids, you know. And um, I ended up being adopted at one years old by my grandparents. And my grandfather was an alcoholic. Grandmother was a gambler, this and that. Um, you know, in the first five years of a child's life are the most important years of the life because that's when they learn mommy, daddy, yes, no. They start to establish them, them basic things of life. And, you know, to be very blunt, I was taught manipulation, lying and stuff at a very early age mm-hmm. and um, because of my home life. And at five years old, my father felt that, you know, it was time that he got his son back. And my grandparents ended up signing me back over to my father. At seven years old, um, my dad married a woman that was 13 years older than him with two kids. And um, needless to say, at first things were great, um, but then I started being sexually molested at seven years old. And uh, that went on for almost seven years till I was 14. And you know, as kids, we, we tend to try to, instead of self-medicating, uh, like we do as adults sometimes, as kids, we start turning to other things, whether it's cutting, suicidal thoughts, isolation, um, you know, bowing other people to lift ourselves up, or just doing these random rebellion acts um, because we're, we're lost individuals or we're suffering or hurting in our home life, and uh, we don't know how to cry out for help. So after about three years of that happening in my life, I would lie to myself and tell myself that this is the way life's supposed to be. And the reason why I did that is, so first off, it wouldn't hurt as bad mentally, emotionally, physically, the whole nine yards. Mm. And, um, you know, I would deceive myself, and I developed that character trait as life continued to progress. And uh, it became a natural thing to me. You know, I I didn't know who God or Jesus was. My family was not into the church. Um, I had heard about the Bible, but never seen a Bible. Um, I've heard about the church, never stepped a foot in the church, and, uh, you know, my life was kind of keep up with the Joneses, go to work, come home, eat a family dinner, go to the sports events, and do the same routine every day. 
and uh, life really had no meaning. You know, so as this time went on, I remember trying to talk to a family member of mine and uh, to inform them of what was happening to me. And the, the fear of God got put in me. And uh, so I kept my mouth shut. And the reason why is because if the situation was brought to light, it would cause some separation in the family. And my family at the time tend, tended to care more about money and material things um, than dealing with an issue with their own flesh and blood. Mm. And um, so, you know, I then developed, okay, it's, I gotta be a peacekeeper. Don't, don't cause problems, don't cause conflict. Whatever you're dealing with, deal with it. And uh, as time progressed, um, at 15, 14 years old, I remember standing in my high school and I was getting bullied at school. I was overweight as a kid. Um, I was contemplating suicide. I already had a plan thought out. And as I was standing in the, the hallway, um, there was this guy that came up. And I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, uh, Remember the Titans or Facing the Giants yeah, or something like that, mm -hmm. where the guy prays for the students before yeah. the sporting events. Mm -hmm. There was a guy named Mark Howard um, in Mount Zion, Illinois, um, which is around where the area that I'm from. And he would come and be a mentor to the kids. He, he, he was a person that, that loved people genu genuinely with no ulterior motives. And um, he was retired. And he came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder. And for some reason, I remember I just turned around and I grabbed this guy and I just hugged him and I started bawling. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he ends up taking me to the principal's office and we call the counselor in this and that. And they sit me down and they said, what's going on, uh, Chad? And um, I just told him everything, you know, and it was the first time in my 14 years of being alive that I had been honest mm -hmm. about the thoughts I was having, about the feelings that I was feeling, about the plan that I had to end my life, and about the torture, tor torment, and abuse that I was going through. And um, so I end up uh, moving away from home at 15 years old and started raising myself. Um, I would live from house to house. Uh, I lived from family member to family member. and. You know, it came to a point to where I was causing problems in other family members' homes um, because I was raised one way and taught some things and then I'd go to the next family member and it'd be totally different. And it's no different than a foster child sometimes. You know, they're tossed from home to home and they never really truly have a mother or father until they're with somebody permanently. And so I ended up becoming homeless and I remember sleeping, I was, for a year and a half, my high school had a football field out back behind it, and it had an announcing stadium in the middle of the bleachers. Um, that bathroom floor below that announcing stadium was my home for almost a year and a half. And I would go into school an hour before early bird PE, um, which was 7 a.m. I would shower in the men's locker room, um, and I would go to Walmart, and I would find a pair of clothes, go in the fitting room, rip off the tags, and leave because I didn't have money and that was my way of survival. Um, you know, I didn't know any better and I would eat at school. Um, I, I, I was I was that kid that would try to, I was so afraid of opening up or expressing my needs um, because the fear of being judged, perception of other people, and I was already an outcast in school and bullied daily. So. At 17 years old, uh, I started shooting pool, and I was in a bar underage, 
and uh, hustled this guy out of a couple hundred dollars within about 10 minutes. And after the game, he says, young man, what do you do for a living? And of course, I made up this long, drawn-out story that, oh, I'm in college. I get out of college at 11 a.m. every day, and currently I'm not employed. Um, he said, great, what are you going to school for? I said, business management and sales and marketing. And uh, he said, oh, really? Okay. So we start talking. He says, you ever thought about selling cars? And I said, well, yeah, my family's got this. And I just, I just went into this long, this lie is what it was. Mm -hmm. And um, he says, well, can you be at my office tomorrow at 1230? And I said, sure. He says, I'd like you to come try to sell cars for me. I said, oh, okay. And here I am. I'm 17 years old, two weeks before my 18-year-old birthday. Not even supposed to be in this bar. Um, didn't know a lick about selling cars. And, but I was there that following day. My first month sold 22 units, made a little over $13,000. Um, and as a 17-year-old that just turned 18, mm. that's a lot of money mm. for a kid that's been sleeping on a bathroom floor in a high school. Uh, a person that's been stealing clothes to, and food to survive every day. Um, I finally felt like, okay, this is my breakthrough. So I went and bought me a little Dodge Neon uh, green. And yeah, and uh, I got me in a little efficiency, like studio apartment. A guy named Bill Noble in Mount Zion, Illinois, um, gave me the place. And without any background references or anything, he knew my situation. I was honest with him. Uh, and, and he gave me a place. So I still had several thousand dollars left over and uh, I had this great plan that, okay, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna uh, do this, do that. And I always wanted to be a motivational speaker. And even, even as a kid, you know, and I would watch YouTube videos and I wanted to use my pain as somebody else's gain. And the only way to do that, and I'm not trying to rhyme here, but the only way to do that is to not allow my pain to go in vain. And, you know, so, but, so after that first, first three months of selling cars, um, I just so happened to be the top salesman three consecutive months in a row. And they had a party for me at my general manager's house. And we're in the basement of my general manager's house. The men are all downstairs. The kids and women are upstairs. And he reaches into the cabinet after about an hour of being there and everybody drinking and partying. And it was a plate of this white powdery substance. Mm -hmm. Now, I had never seen or touched a drug in my life or even had a sip of alcohol uh, up to this point. I'm 18 years old, three months into the car business, um, getting ready to graduate high school. And um, the plate got to me and I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like them. I was longing for that father figure, that male role model and I was tired of being the outcast. So I snorted a line off this plate, and when I did it, it was like all my anger, fear, frustration, guilt, shame, remorse, everything that was built up inside of me that was condemning me was gone. But that only lasted for about 10 minutes, and I wanted more and wanted more. So I remember waking up upstairs in their spare bedroom the following day, and I guess I had blacked out, and uh, it was cocaine, it was ether-based cocaine laced with heroin was my first drug ever. And um, I was 18 years old. So that habit went from once a month to once a week to seven days a week to the point I was snorting two eight balls, which is seven grams of ether-based cocaine a day. Mm. Um, and those of you that have, may have experienced addiction or addiction in the family, um, 
you know, that's several hundred dollars a day, seven days a week. And I continued in the car business and I thought I was that functioning addict. Um, then I started drinking every day. Then I thought I was a functioning alcoholic. And um, it just, the disease of addiction progressed in my life. And I was so empty. I was so miserable. I was so dead. I was so uh, demonic. Um, you know, I hated everyone and everything. All I cared about was that next fix um, and not feeling the pain that was rooted inside of me. And um, so I ended up getting arrested uh, for my first time uh, right before I turned 20 years old for white collar crimes. And um, I was making eighty to $90,000 a year at 18 to 20 years old. And, um, but I was still broke. And the reason being is because when you're in addiction, I don't care if you're making a million dollars a year, it's never enough. And, uh, you know, any program that you work in, in addiction, even Celebrate Recovery, which is the faith-based program of addiction, you know, we talk about how one's too many, a thousand's never enough. And, you know, that's so true. So, I, um, I went through that process, got arrested, got back out, and went back to selling cars. Then I jumped up to doing finance. Um, my income shot up tremendously, and then I got involved in doing uh, shooting heroin. And uh, so my addiction went from snorting cocaine to shooting heroin. And as soon as I started doing that, my life was a downhill spiral from there. Um, overdosed four times, was pronounced dead one out of the four. And uh, I actually have a video of that, and it's crazy because I got uh, I watched myself die, mm. but yet I still chose to go get high again after that. Mm. And and that's what we do. We we've uh, what do you call that? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Insanity. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I was living this life of chaos and and insanity. So I end up um, getting arrested again. This time I got sentenced to 10 years in the Department of Corrections outside of Chicago, Illinois. Served five out of the 10. Um, I was raped my second week in prison. My top seven teeth were shattered uh, with the handicapped shower spigot um, as I was raped. And um, so I remember waking up on a fiberglass stretch board being carried to the medical unit of the penitentiary and then getting told what had happened to me. You know, and any of you that may be listening or watching that's been through any type of mental, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, um, you know that that's a trauma that you live with. Mm -hmm. It's not something that just goes away. Um, but it's what we do with that trauma. It's what we do with the PTSD. It's how we handle it. It's the actions that we take, you know. And uh, But at the time, I didn't know how to handle it or how to do it. But all I know is for the rest of my life, every time I brush my teeth and see my teeth that were implanted, it's a flashback and a reminder of what happened to me in the penitentiary. And um, so once again, inside prison, I had to find a way to self-medicate myself. So I went to making hooch in prison. I went to buying pills off the deck from people. I went to just doing, doing different things to numb uh, that trauma that had happened and took place. I end up, um, after two and a half years of being in prison, I get a card, and uh, the card's from a family member that says, you need to call home, grandma's not doing well, um, and you need to possibly say your goodbyes. Well, my entire life, I had always told my grandma, grandma, you're my hero. And uh, I used to lay in her 
arms as a baby, and I remember it clear up until I was five, six, seven years old, and I'd rub her face and I'd say, damn old, will you marry me? And, you know, so she, uh, she was not doing well, and I decided I went and I called, and the people that were there, the nurses and stuff at the home taking care of her, answered the phone, and they took the phone to her. And um, she found the strength, and she says, Chatty, can I ask you something? I said, yeah, Grandma. She says, when are you going to be my hero? Mm. Mm, that's exactly what I said. I'm sitting inside four penitentiary walls, two and a half years still left to serve. Grandma's on her deathbed. She dies, I can't go to the funeral. I'm totally, my dignity, pride, and everything's been stripped away from me. And I have no one and nowhere to turn to. You have to remember, I didn't know who God, Jesus, any of this stuff was. And uh, I said, Grandma, how can I be your hero? She says, you can start right now. I said, well, by doing what? She says, I want you to write a book. Mm. I said, write a book? I said, I failed reading and writing. I hate school. <laughs> she says, no. She says, this is going to be easy for you, but hard at the same time. I said, what am I supposed to write about, Grandma? She says, your life story. I says, no, 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 no. And I start crying. I said, Grandma, I can't write about my life. It hurts too bad to think about it. I don't even want to talk about it. Da, da, da. Mm. She says, Chatty, listen to me. She says, you can either continue to wallow in your misery or you can start writing your life story out. In return, you're going to have inner healing inside as you start to release them things and you can help so many other people that are going through the same stuff that you're going through. Wow. I said, well, what do I title it, Grandma? She said, stuff by choice. Hmm. I said, stuff by choice, why that? She says, grandson, because in life, every situation or circumstance you end up in is because of the choice you make as an adult, the choice that an adult made for you as a child. She says, right now, as an adult, you have the choice to either wallow in self-pity, sitting inside a penitentiary due to your own choices, mm -hmm. or you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off, move forward by never giving up, and start writing out your life story and make something of yourself even inside four penitentiary, four penitentiary walls. She says, grandson, freedom doesn't start externally. It starts internally. Mm. This is where Jesus came into play. Your grandma has a ton of wisdom. Yes. I mean, if she just threw that all out on the phone. <laughs> yes. Your grandma's amazing. She <laughs> is amazing. And wait till you hear the end part here. Yeah. So she says, Chatty, just surrender. Mm. I said, Grandma, what do you mean? She says, that's for you to figure out. Just surrender. She hung up the phone. Wow. So I, needless to say, I go back to my cell block and I turn on my little, little clear tech TV and TVN's on the TV show. <laughs> so I start watching this and I start listening and I'm listening to the music and then that became my TV show seven days a week, all day long, every moment that I was in the cell. And I started going through these feelings and emotions. Now listen to what I'm saying. Feelings and emotions. And... I started to say, okay, God, if you're real, then you'll do this. Mm. If you're real, prove this to me and I'll do this. Mm. I started making deals with him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it didn't work. So anyways, I go through this process and I wrote 177 pages of that book. Mm. Um, I'm still writing it to this day. Mm. And uh, it is titled Stuck by Choice. And then the, the co-title is A Story About a Young Addict's Life. And uh, on the picture of the cover, it has myself standing on a beach with the sun side on one hand and a cuff and chain broken on this mm -hmm. side. And then the demonic part on the other side of my past. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so anyways, I'm, I'm doing all of this and it comes time for me to get released. Guess who picked me up from prison? Grandma. Grandma. Amen. Grandma beat the illness. She was the one that picked me up. And uh, I get in the car. Um, she was more healthier then than she had been in the last several years. Wow. And uh, she says, where do you want to go, grandson? And uh, so I told her. And she would not allow me to live with her until I proved myself. So what did I do? I went to my mother's and uh, I remember sitting there talking to my mother and my mother looked over at me and she says, uh, Chatty, will you reach into that drawer over there and hand me that knife out of there? And I'm thinking she's gonna use it. So I reach over and I go to hand it to her. She says, now start stabbing me in the chest because this is what you've done to me every single day of your adult life. Mm. What she was trying to tell me is I've, I've, I'm killing her. Mm. I've got to change and so my first thought is, okay, I, I gotta get high. So I run out of the kitchen, I run out the garage door as I'm running down the road to leave to go find drugs. Uh, my sister comes running out, she's 13 years old at the time. And um, she says, Chatty, when are you gonna stop being just a picture, card, letter, and a phone call and actually be my brother? <laughs> so I, um, I, uh, I tell myself that I gotta get high, that I can't deal with this. And um, so you'd think that would, ch that would change me. And I remember my mom would come looking for me all throughout the night. She found me a couple times and she'd pull me out of dope houses. Um, as I'm sitting there shooting heroin, people are falling out on the floor. And uh, I just wanted to die. Like I had no desire to live. You know, so on 10 10 of 2015, um, I'm gonna speed through my story here to get to the now. On 10-10 of 2015, um, I was in a relationship with a female. I was uh, newly engaged, two kids. Um, her name was Courtney. And uh, we were living together in Mattoon, Illinois. Um, but I, I honestly took advantage of her uh, to support my addiction, to have a roof over my head. And, but yet she tried loving me any way possible. And um, so I end up uh, planning on committing suicide on this day again for the third time in my life. And the reason why I chose that day, 1010 of 2015, was because inside the penitentiary or prison, when they holler 1010 over the radios in Illinois, that stands for Staff in Distress, Inmate Hurt, Fight in Progress, or Need Help. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was on my way home after going and picking up drugs because um, my plan was to go home and overdose. And I get pulled over for my license plate light being burnt out. Okay, check this out. It's a God thing. I'm on Bluetooth with my mother at the time that I get pulled over telling my mom this is going to be the last time she talks to me. Oh, wow. That I love you, mom. You want to hang up the phone, you're not going to hear what's getting ready to happen. And, um, she says, no, please, Chatty, stop. My mom was two and a half hours away from me in Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hit what I thought was the end button, but it wasn't. It was the button that muted my mom, or that muted mm -hmm. part of the conversation, but yet she still could hear everything that was going on mm -hmm. that I was saying right. in the car. So this cop comes up to my window and he's got his gun drawn automatically because in the system from how many times I had been arrested prior, I came up as armed and dangerous and a habitual criminal. 
And uh, he says, Mr. Helm, I need you to put your hands on the steering wheel. And with your right hand, I need you to slowly grab your license, registration, and insurance card. And uh, next thing you know, I see another cop coming up on the passenger side. And with this flashlight and looking in, and in my passenger seat, I had a baby wipe diaper box. And uh, it was full of needles, spoons, rigs, heroin, cocaine, crack, and meth. Mm. And um, they could see in there, they could see a little bit through the top of it, this and that. But he says, actually, I'm gonna need you to step out of the vehicle. And I said, no, you're gonna shoot me. Mm. Otherwise, you're gonna chase me. And my plan was, I wanted him to kill me. Mm. And uh, my mother's hearing all of this. So I started screaming, shoot me, and I put my car in drive, my foot on the brake, and I start to roll up the window, and as I roll up in the window, I start to take off. Well, I saw something out of the corner of my eye because I had blacked out for a minute as I was taking off, and once my vision started to come back, I see this officer was jammed in my window, and I was dragging him down the road in a high-speed chase. I had rolled his arm up in my window. And um, so anyways, my goal wasn't to hurt nobody else. Uh, it was just to hurt myself. So I slam on the brakes and I, I hit the down button and I, the officer drops and uh, I continue to take off. And I found an anhydrous ammonia tank, about two, it was two counties out of where they were chasing me from. And my plan was to hit that tank and die. And uh, well, about 11 vehicles, officers were chasing me by this point, and two of them were canine units, and they barricaded. They saw what I was going to do, so they barricaded this anhydrous ammonia tank. And uh, so I slammed on my brakes. The car spun out, and uh, next thing I know, they're busting out the windows. They pulled me out of the vehicle, and as they slam me down into the rocks to handcuff me, um, I'm looking over at the canine unit vehicles and the two cops that were standing there, and one had his gun drawn and one didn't. And um, so they end up picking me up, toss me in the cop car, they take me to the jail, they go through an interview process, they put me in booking, as I'm sitting in booking, this officer comes up to the cell and he says, Chad, I know you don't know me, but you're better than this. Mm -hmm. He said, just surrender. What did grandma tell me in prison? Just surrender. Just surrender. So I tried spitting on this cop through the mesh hole of the jail door. I cut, cursed him out, told him that he don't care about me, he's just a pig, and I called him every name in the book. And he left, and uh, about another week goes by, and um, I'm now down into the trod, and it's on second shift lockdown. It's about 11 o'clock at night, and I hear a peck on the cell door. I was in a two-man cell, and it was this officer. He says, listen to me, Chad. He says, I know that you don't want to hear from me. He says, but dude, looking at you is like looking at my own child who I just arrested a few weeks ago going through the same stuff that you're going through. Mm. You are better than this, just surrender. And I heard the chuck hole, which is the little door that they can pass your mail or food through of the jail door. And I heard it open up and I looked down and a Bible, he handed me a Bible through the chuck hole. Mm. He says, just surrender and he walked away. And uh, so I remember dropping to my knees in the jail cell that night, my celly or bunkie was asleep at the time. And I said, God, my way is death, your way is life. I can't do this on my own no more. Please help me. And I got up, I got back in my bed, and uh, I laid there and thought all night long, and then I get up the next day, and uh, I knew I wanted something different, but I didn't know how to get it. I had never been led mm -hmm. to that. And um, so anyways, uh, about a, two months goes by, and I get called to come cuff up 
that I have a visitor still in jail fighting this case. I'm facing six to 30 years, mm. class X sentencing. Um, I've got charges piled up. And um, so they take me down to the library and there's this cop and this elderly gentleman sitting down there with a pamphlet. And they sit me across from him, they uncuff me, and he slides me this pamphlet over, and he says, before you read that, you tell me your life story, and he says, if you lie to me or keep anything out, it'll be one of the worst decisions you make. Hmm. I said, okay. I admitted guilt to everything, I told him everything, I spilled my guts to this guy, he says, now read, read, read my story. So I open up this pamphlet, it says, Released Through Jesus Prison Ministries, founder Jim Helton, Mattoon, Illinois. His story matched my story to a T, the same charges that, he, that I had, he had once had, the same abuse I went through, he had once been through. And um, so he says, Chad, he says, what's one thing you want when I leave this place? I said, well, I'm facing up to 30 years of my life in prison. I said, to pray that my mother's still alive when I get released. He said, I'll pray for you anyways. He says, what's one thing you want? I said, well, to pray for my aunt that her health gets better. She's been in the hospital for the last couple weeks, not doing too well. He says, Chad, stop with the praying and Jesus stuff. He says, I'm a pastor. I'm going to pray for you anyways. He says, if you could have one thing right now, what would it be? I said, to be able to walk out them doors or wrap my arms around my family one last time and a chance to prove myself. He says, hmm, I don't know. He says, but I'm going to come back and talk to you here in about an hour and a half. I said, okay. My bond was $50,000 full cash. There is hope for those who are facing addiction. If you or someone you know would like to hear the rest of Chad Helm's story, we encourage you to look for part two, which will come very soon. Spoiler alert, there is hope, and there is a really good ending. So please come back to hear the rest.